welcome to the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio. From creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets, here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. This is episode 250. Wait a minute, that can't be right. Oh, no, that is in fact right. It is episode 250. I am Vincent Diamante, and there are two dogs that are just quietly, quietly snoozing away by my feet. They are the best. They are old. But they still act like young pups. They're full of energy when they want to be, when they got work to do, when there's all sorts of stuff on the horizon, just like with Alex May. (laughs) Hey, Alex, how are you doing? You know, each week we, each time we do this, Vince, I'm I'm always like excited to hear how you are going to elegantly segue across to introducing me as, you know, they are old and just like Alex May, he's old. Hi, Vince. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm glad man. you didn't go there. <laughs> no, no, no. You no. I was thinking about like how they're 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 young pups. Like even so, my dogs are 14 and 15 years old. They are they're okay. definitely getting up there, but. They actually have a lot of energy, and I'm always surprised, like this this little doxy that is 90% of my Instagram photo feed. That, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's got all this energy. When he wants something, he gets it. He he does what he can in order to make it happen. You know, running over there, barking over there. It's pretty great. Uh, no, I was just thinking about how whenever we're chatting, you're always full of energy. You're You're ready to go and hit this thing, even when I'm struggling a little bit with the malaise or the or the tiredness or something yeah it's a, it's a bit uh, backward isn't it because for no, normally when we record these it's now 9 p.m on a friday night for me so i'm at the very end of my week and of course it's like what is it 1 p.m or 12 p.m for you uh yeah as we record 12 this. p.m over here yeah yeah no i um it's always great to chat with you and mike and uh, i enjoy doing these shows very much and it's always wonderful to uh you know just uh Last Friday, uh, I went to an event held in Stockholm by the uh, game audio studio Two Feathers, who are um, a very well-known audio studio here in Stockholm. And it was it was about thirty odd game audio people uh, from the Stockholm, the local Stockholm um, game audio community, were there in attendance. And um, the reason I mentioned this is because it's just fantastic, you know, like uh, game audio people coming together. We. <laughs> Very often, we we don't really have a, a fellow shoulder to cry on as as the week mm-hmm. progresses, and uh, you know when we get together, uh, sharing you know war stories and and the ups and downs of what we do, and you know I think um, very much still our our art form, both from a aesthetic artistic point of view and also from a technical point of view, is is not not sort of fully understood by our uh, wonderful colleagues in the game industry and other areas. And uh, so it's always great to chat with uh, with you and Mike and other game audio colleagues. And yeah, I'm always uh, feeling great to be on the show to have the chance to, you know, provide uh, some conversation for other lovely game audio colleagues out there to listen to as you are uh, washing your dishes or driving to work or, or whatever it is that people do while they listen to podcasts. But, yeah. but Vince... 
we we do have something to to discuss that's quite important it's not directly actually it's not really at all related to game audio but it is a huge huge thing that's happening right now as we record this show uh, and that of course um, is the whole situation with unity and their new uh pricing policy um I mean it's been pretty much the the talk of you know every game development conversation at least on on my level on the sort of small medium sized indie company level it's something that everybody kind of unanimously feels the same way about it's it's ironic that unity has actually created some unity for once <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yes it's true it feels like the last few days right now we are recording this on friday september 15th and it feels like even though it's just been the last two or three days, it's been the entire week of business and drama and conversation all across game development. Everyone is just talking about Unity and what the heck is going on because yeah. either it came out of left field for them or they are looking at what what is going to be the impact to them as a small studio, a big studio, maybe an individual person just getting into game development or um, a, a small team just trying to figure this out because their margins as a small team making it in the game industry is, is always tough to deal with. Or It seems to have had a huge impact and resonance throughout the entire game development world. Yeah. Precisely. And, you know, I mean, just to preface all of this, I mean, a lot of um, what uh, you and I, I guess, will be saying today will, or I, maybe I shouldn't speak for you, but what I will be saying will be based on, you know, hearsay and stuff that I'm seeing online posted by people. So maybe it, it um, my opinions are formed by what I've been seeing and hearing from fellow colleagues. And therefore, not all of this is sort of researched opinion and some of it may be speculative, but like I have seen a lot of comment on Twitter from people who know people who work at Unity and also some other people um, posting online who actually do work for Unity and also a group of developers that are part of a, I guess, like a developer Unity uh, private Discord or private Slack channel um, where often Unity confirms with some, you know, higher profile developers about, uh, you know, the wisdom of their moves and I guess the technical direction of their product. And... Um, what it seems like is happening really is that uh, it seems like a very, very hasty decision on the part of uh, Unity's corporate, uh, you know, the, the decision-making people there, just mm -hmm. because um, uh, a lot of the developers who were consulted about this initially, and also a lot of the staff who work at Unity who experience in game development, unanimously have warned the management against such a policy change uh, for obvious reasons, uh, and you know, uh, it, it seemed like a lot of those concerns were falling on deaf ears because it just went straight out to being publicised. And um, you know, when you think about it, it, it just it breaks so many fundamental business models that are currently operating inside the game industry, doesn't? It? I mean, if you think, mm -hmm. for just for example, like uh, a free to play model, you know, you, you, it totally smashes apart the free-to-play model because that's all dependent on getting as many installs as possible, relying on, you know, the percentage chance that one of those one million people will be a so-called whale who will go in and spend huge amounts of money and make up for all of the other free installs out there. But this mm -hmm. this whole pay-per-install install policy 
breaks that, not to mention it being retroactive. So it's actually counting installs from the past as well. Not to mention, you know, the, the terms of service, uh, which normally would be in a position to protect users of Unity software from such drastic policy changes, mysteriously going AWOL on GitHub. <laughs> I don't know if you heard about that, but the, the yeah, terms of yeah. it, it sort of disappeared overnight uh, suspiciously. So there is now no kind of uh, easy course for, um, you know, especially the larger companies, uh, to to dispute this. Um, it, it's it's just, yeah. I mean, even it's, some people yeah. that I've read have gone to the extent of speculating that perhaps this is all just by design and perhaps it's kind of like a, you know, on Monday we'll have the obligatory apology starting off with the, the three words, we hear you, you know, we're listening, you know, you... you <laughs> You uh, you expressed your thoughts on this policy change, and we're listening. And what a what a great opportunity this is to show how connected we are we are with the common opinion of the game industry. It, mm-hmm. may, some people are speculating that it's all sort of some big marketing design like that. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but I mean, yeah, one thing is for sure: this is this is not great for <laughs> Unity. Yeah, it, it's so funny. Like right now, uh, I guess there is one project that I am currently working on that is a, a Unity project. But for the most part in in my career, I actually haven't worked on that many Unity projects. You know, things mm. like us working together on Space Folk City. Uh, oh, okay, th- that's cool. But um, it seems like for the last few decades, I, I always seem to go to companies where they want to roll their own engine. So All right. I've, Unity has always been this funny thing that's on the on the periphery for me. Where it's like, oh, okay, yeah. Oh, you're using Unity? That's cool. And so I know about Unity through the reputation and other people talking about Unity. And it isn't until, until much later where I would sometimes be contracted to work on some of these Unity projects. But Unity has been going on for literally decades now. Like I remember mm. Unity coming up right when I was getting out of college in the late 2000s and seeing people talk about how, oh yeah, this is the next thing. This is the democratization of game development. This is so much better than everything that had come before. Uh, you know, people didn't want to go into something like Unreal back in the Unreal 2, Unreal 3 days where it's too heavy, too mm. ponderous, too too 3D, too AAA, or right, right. things like Torque or Dark Basic, where uh, it, this doesn't feel quite powerful enough, not robust enough. Um, oh, yeah, it's free, but there's not a whole lot of support there. But mm. then Unity comes along, and there's this groundswell of support as it gets people and companies and everyone from the little indies and the students to the double A and even triple A games using unity in order to deliver their product. And now unity is used for so much stuff. It's used for triple A stuff. It's used for really high, high production value projects and high revenue projects, Mm. things like your Genshin impacts, which has had a huge, huge impact on the game industry, no pun intended, or mm. 
all these big indies that have come out over the last few years. They're they're doing really well making these Unity projects, and it's great because of that momentum of individuals and students that have cut their teeth as developers working on Unity projects. And they go to a team now that has maybe a single-A, double-A, triple-A budget, and they could just be dropped in and they understand the project. No problem. Mm. So Unity has been doing really, really well in terms of just having people that want to work within that engine, within that framework. Mm. Uh, But... Yeah, I guess a lot of, like you were saying earlier, a lot of this is hearsay, but the feeling is that those executives at Unity have been doing what they're supposed to do as executives of a publicly traded company and thinking about how can we maximize our income? How can we maximize our revenue? And they're looking at these games that have these huge install bases, but comparatively little that they're actually paying uh, in order to use their engine, especially things like free-to-play games like, like a Genshin Impact. And so this whole thing about charging per install as opposed to the much simpler and what most people would say significantly more fair model that they had in the past, which also conveniently, you can't actually see those old terms anymore because, like you said, they actually got rid of that publicly accessible uh, GitHub that showed what were the terms of service for Unity over the years. Mm. Yeah, I and mean, there's so much to unpack there. Like the um, the choice of you know custom engine, um, bespoke game engine, or the choice of a platform like Unity or Unreal. For a, a small company like us, you know, Moon Mode, that my company, we're three people, right? And on the scale of three people, obviously, you know, you don't, you just don't have the resources to go about trying to create your own engine, and therefore, mm-hmm. something like Unreal or Unity is a is a really really uh, important choice, and it it kind of feels for me a bit like we bet on the wrong horse, <laughs> because we are, or well, I guess I can say we were we were a Unity studio. Um, mm. uh, meaning that all of our projects are in Unity and basically our entire operation and business model is built around this product. And I guess that from, um, I mean, it's important to say, like I've been watching some YouTube videos from uh, some gaming uh, enthusiasts. And when you read the comment section, you, you should never read the comment section, but when you do read <laughs> the comment section, um, a lot of people, are, I've read a few comments where people are saying things like, I don't know who is more stupid, Unity or the people who choose to use Unity. And mm-hmm. it is important to mention, if we do have people out there who are listening who are not involved in game audio and on the technical development end of the game industry, that switching an engine is a monumentally complex task. It's not a simple case of, you know, just plug, put it put it through some kind of plug-in and there you go. It's all, it, uh, you know, spits out. C++ and Blueprint on the other end, and there you go, now you're up and running in Unreal. No, it doesn't work (laughs) like that. Because just as you mentioned there, when you look at the history of Unreal versus the history of Unity, you can see the fundamental difference in their philosophy. Unity was always designed to be kind of like a a game genre agnostic uh, kind of toolbox of things where you can just build your own, you know, whatever it is that you need to make. On the other hand, Unreal, of course, is made for Epic's games, obviously, and then 
it's grown from what Epic wanted to use it for, for its own games outwards into being able to now be able to accommodate all kinds of genres. But fundamentally, the philosophy is entirely different. In Unity, you basically make your own stuff or you get stuff written that's been released on the Unity Asset Store. Uh, whereas in Unreal, most of the the, the bare bones uh, kind of fundamental foundation of a video game has already been made by Unreal and it's all in there already. Epic's mm-hmm. done it and Epic tests it with all of its, you know, hugely popular games and Epic's constantly developing all of that. So um, yeah, anyway, the point of all this is that it's incredibly hard to switch. Right now, myself, as well as, you know, our tech director and also our um, our colleagues on our level of, uh, you know, a uh, small, medium-sized indie company. I mean, we're small. Everybody's just feeling the same way. It's like, wow, we had all our eggs in one basket because we had no other choice. And now that basket is has basically got a hole in the bottom and a big sign on top that says, no games, please. <laughs> no game developers. <laughs> yeah. No eggs, please, I should say. So yeah. it's it's quite tragic. And I expect that, I mean, for sure, next week, there's going to be some kind of rollback or some kind of apology and announcement and you know we will take on board your opinions and reevaluate our position and uh no doubt they're gonna they're gonna take a step backwards because i mean just it's triggered quite an exodus but i will just finally say um before we finish up with this because yeah we're here to talk about game audio and not unity but um mm-hmm. i would say that like any any glimmer of good faith and goodwill that unity had with the game development community, I think has been pretty well squandered now. <laughs> and I think mm-hmm. I think it's going to be pretty hard for them to claw back uh, that trust. And, um, you know, a lot of people are now uh, looking at uh, Unreal and, and it's um, uh, also Godot, the open source game engine, is uh, um, receiving a lot of attention at the moment, which is nice. Um, and so, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, I... It's it's interesting times, but it's just also quite disappointing, really, isn't it? Yeah. It's exciting times. You know, video game development is always exciting for one reason or another. It could be things like this Unity thing, or maybe things that are even further out of our control, like the relationships between distributors and publishers and console manufacturers for some reason, or, Mm. you know, there's all sorts of things that are out there. Um, Unity does happen to be one of those things that is at least for the most part in our control. I mean, yes, Unity was considered the de facto standard for development for so many people in so many circumstances. And now, like you said, there's a hole in the bottom and maybe it's worth doing something else. Or maybe it is mm. something where they will, in fact, patch up the hole. You know, maybe there will be a mea culpa next week. Uh, maybe by the time this podcast episode has come out, they would have figured out something that is um, that will ameliorate any of the anxieties that everyone has brought up, like very valid anxieties about who's exactly going to pay for all of these things that Unity has actually instantiated out there now. And yeah, as the, we're the recording, last... yeah, yeah, as we're recording, it, it could be 
a company like Microsoft or Sony. No, they're the ones that are on the hook for it. Not you developers. Sorry about the bad messaging. <laughs> or or maybe it's something about, oh, yeah, sorry we weren't clear about what are the thresholds for the types of developers that are going to have to be on the hook for these things. Or, yeah. oh, yeah, whatever. It could be anything. But yeah, I think we all I, we know I, is that these are exciting times. Yeah, I think that it's it's going to be too little too late because like I, I did a, a few days ago, I think that no, was it yesterday they were saying that like somebody was saying, well, what about Game Pass? You know, any kind of script subscription oh, yeah. service like that, what happens in that case? And then I think Unity said, oh, no, no, in that case, it's going to be the platform holder that has to pay. But when you think about it, like if Microsoft and Sony are going to have to pay Unity, then like it, it just means for sure to begin with, publishers are going to be much more reluctant to take on projects that are Unity projects for mm -hmm. these reasons. And then secondly, you know, you've, you've done your game and it's a Unity project. Now you want to release it on the Microsoft, uh, under Microsoft or with Sony. Uh, I can imagine that they're going to be, you know, taking a good hard look. Well, wait a moment. What engine did you do? Did you do this again? Unity. Oh, okay. So if we bring on this popular game onto our platform, onto our store, then we're going to be liable for these costs. Oh, by the way, if the game gets pirated, then we're going to be liable for those costs, even though we're not seeing any revenue. It and oh, Unity doesn't say how they count an install, like what technology actually um, uh, is in place to, to count an install. And also, you've got the issue of of the potential for people to be, you know, um, malicious. Yeah, exactly, maliciously installing and uninstalling and installing and uninstalling and and basically causing a developer to have to pay Unity out of, you know, bad intent like that. Um, so uh, we could go on and on. Let's not. Yeah, let's, not let's, we, let's, let's finish up with this. But like, wow, yeah. let's hope for the best. Yeah. Hopefully there will be some clarity on the other end. And whatever it is, maybe it's good for Unity and Unity developers. Maybe it's not, but clarity. And hopefully that comes with a little bit of time. And then we can go on and move on with that whole process of game developments as well as everything else. And for us, that means making cool audio for the games we're working on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Speaking of cool audio, I uh, normally we do conspicuous consumption at the end of the show, which is where we uh, talk about the, uh, the, the games or the movies, literature, music, architecture, art, poetry, whatever that we've been enjoying. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just going to uh, preemptively take my conspicuous consumption moment right now and say that I'm actually playing Starfield. Are you playing, Vince? Oh, that's so much time. I, I don't have time, unfortunately. It's just a really weird scheduling thing for me, but I can get into that later. I haven't been mm. playing Starfield. Yeah, it's, um, um, I mean, I have, I have my own personal opinions and thoughts on the design of the game and what it's like to play, but that's not... The main point here, the main point here is the sound. It's it's really good. It's wonderful. I mean, it's just good, good, solid um, audio implementation. Like it, it's one of these cases where the best audio in this case is the audio that you don't really notice. <laughs> you know, it just hmm. feel feels natural and native and part of the world. One nice thing is this: it's there's a lot of music, a lot of music. Like I, I think it's. When I think back to it, it's like a very few moments that you're playing and there are not music. It's just constant music. So wow. that's great. Um, uh, I'm not at all thinking when I'm playing it, I'm not really thinking from a technical point of view about how they how they do this with the, the music implementation. 
but I haven't yet gotten to the point where I've felt that the music is repetitive or like, oh, there's that theme again, or, you know, here's this, which is really impressive for a game that's designed to be played for so long, like this, a wonderful score, uh, which really sort of captures that, uh, yeah, I guess uh, mm. artistically, visually, they were going for this idea of, was it NASA punk, punk NASA? <laughs> so yeah, it, it should look sort of familiar to our own world in terms of the um, uh, the sort of technical aesthetics of it. it. It should look like, you know, what the International Space Station looks like or what the, you know, what the space shuttles look like or mm -hmm. uh, an ast astronaut spacesuit that we have in our own real world. It sort of should be reminiscent of that and give those cues, but also have clearly its own character and flavor. And that exactly, exactly characterizes the music for me. Wow. That the music very much is that. It has all of those sort of cues and some of them you might say are a bit cliched and a bit stereotypical for, uh, for you know, an orchestral science fiction game soundtrack. But again, I can you can sort of sense that oh, it's done like that to give the sense that, you know, yes, I'm playing a science fiction game in space. <laughs> but <laughs> that's really same, cool. Yeah, at the same time, a lot of the orchestration has has a very, very distinct character and personality to it, which is, yeah, just a very, very successful rendition of the this idea of NASA punk um, uh, in a musical context. It's it's very, very good. That's that's really awesome. I, I mean, I wouldn't have expected any different just because, you know, Bethesda does have a very strong reputation when it comes to music and the scores that they've made for all these games over the years. Um, and uh, I mean, not just Bethesda, but also the music composer Inan Zur has worked in music for games for literally decades. Uh, mm. He definitely knows what he's doing. And I'm really looking forward to actually playing this game once I have a little bit of time on my hand. Uh, just been really tough. I'm glad to see that you've been having fun with it. How much time do you think you've put into the game already? Um, not that much. I've been pretty busy. So I'm up to about seven hours now. So uh, still, you know, relatively early days. Um, okay. The, the sound effect design as well um, is just excellent, like really good. Um, mm. the, all of the sound effects, again, they have that like really, really realistic feel about them, but also a, a strong character to them as well, just sort of gluing everything together. It's just a wonderful, um, uh, you know, we're doing great work in game audio these days, really, all of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking to you, dear listener, you you as well. I think we're, we're just doing really, really good work. You know, it's, it's really cool to play these big budget games and just hear you know, such excellent work going on in audio where it doesn't stand out. You don't sort of finish your game session and think, oh man, that that track sucked or like this sound was funny <laughs> or it just sort of sits there, but it, it glues the whole world in together in such a cool way. And that's exactly, you know, what we like to, uh, I, I mean, I mean, that is of course one approach of, to game audio. There are, there are other approaches as well. Um, uh, but to see it so well done like this is just really, Really satisfying. So um, mm -hmm. I don't know if there are any Bethesda engineers, game audio friends listening to this excellent, excellent work, and what a what a wonderful time to be working in our industry. Mm, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, uh, well deserved Bethesda 
um, Bethesda engineers, Bethesda audio engineers, Bethesda sound designers. Uh, mm. I'm I'm really looking forward to actually doing that. Um, I got some Starfield. I've got I've got a couple different games queued up since we're talking about conspicuous consumption um, a little early. Um, except unfortunately, I haven't been actually playing these games. I have been purchasing these games, which I think is exactly <laughs> what Unity wants because I've been installing <laughs> it on my PS5 without actually without actually starting it up. Oh my gosh. Oh, no. Okay. I'll, okay, I'll get off of that topic. Um, let's see. Uh, I think the last one that I installed is this game called uh, Eternites, which mm, is sort okay. of a a multi-genre game of the type that seems to be really popular these days because is it an action game? Yes. Is it a role-playing game? Yes. Is it a dating sim relationship building game? Yes. Are there mini games and dungeon exploring that happens at different points in the game? Yes. <laughs> it, so, it, sounds yeah. like, it sounds like you're describing Fire Emblem. Because that, that's most of those things that you just listed. Oh, that's true. Yeah, Fire Emblem. <laughs> It's it, yeah, Fire Emblem definitely has a lot of those. Um, but uh, uh, I mean, certainly many. Uh, I would say this game has some uh, influence from games like Fire Emblem, as well as other specifically Japanese developed and published games that have relationship building as a core part of the game experience. Um, cool. I guess full disclosure, the developer or some of the developers at this uh, company, Studio Sai, that worked on this game actually were former colleagues over at that game company, which is why this was on my queue for a game to try. So, oh, cool. um, so I'm looking forward to trying this game among others. Uh, it's such a react. It's such a contrast from other games that I had actually made time to play previously this year, where it's mm. something much more specific and straightforward, like, um, I don't know, let's say something like an inside or a limbo, where it's like, oh, that's that very specific, tight experience that you're playing. Right. And, you know, okay, it's very carefully crafted. Not to say that this isn't carefully crafted, but it's a very specific, very well-defined experience that you are immediately inside and you stay in there from the beginning all the way to the end of the game. Mm. Um, and games like Eternites and lots of other games that do this crossing of genres are such a different can of worms there. And they can be incredibly immersive, but also, whoa, you're just switching modes all the time. Because mm. if I asked you as a sound designer... For example, hey, this game is a dating sim. Uh, you might immediately have some preconceptions of what does it sound like from right. whether it be a soundtrack perspective or from a user interface perspective or an action sound perspective. Uh, but if I said something like, oh, this is an a 3D action game, you know, you're doing hacking and slashing and the player is smashing on the X and circle buttons in order to do these combos, then you as a sound designer might also have some different preconceptions about the soundtrack, the sound, the UI sound. And that that always interests me in, when yeah. it comes to making games like this. I haven't 
quite had the experience of working on this type of game, but I see the popularity of these types of games and I think, whoa, that would be a challenge. I'm not sure how I would respond if I was confronted with this type of game to work on. What, what do you think? Yeah. That's really fascinating. Um, the idea of sort of uh, cross-pollination of different genres, um, there's a direct parallel within music as well, right? Where you take one genre and you take another genre and you, you kind of forcefully push them together, even if it wouldn't be an intuitive or natural fit. Um, and I certainly know that um, uh, in Japan, in Japanese popular music, that is something we've, we've talked about it, I don't know, years ago before, but uh, that is something that is quite common in Japanese pop music where um, there there will be a rather, what's the word, um, uh, not mm. reckless, but um, <laughs> what's the word, like non-sacred approach to, to mm. genres where, you know, yeah. non-sacred, there's a better word for that. But like, basically what I mean by that is that, you know, if you, for example, if you really, really love, uh, let's let's pick a genre. Let's say uh, reggae, for example. If you really, really love reggae, then most likely um, the majority of people would who really are passionate about reggae may prefer reggae from a purist point of view. So it's like reggae is itself is sacred. The genre is sacred, and you know, thou shalt not touch the holy reggae it, this is mm -hmm. this is my this is you know reggae should sound like this then you take like for example what's something that like obviously wouldn't go with reggae like let's say um smooth hmm. jazz yeah there you go well that's, you know kenny that's... g tile hot like like just uh you know super clean soprano sax lines smooth jazz well why don't we say like Indonesian gamelan. How about that? Oh, okay, gamelan. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like so. So now, you know, when you smash those two together, and now you have gamelan reggae. Um, some people who are, who like this kind of cross pollination might be very excited by the, the kind of textures and possibilities that could be gotten from having, you know, Indonesian gamelan and all of its complexity, but with a reggae feel. Um, yeah, people. People who are connoisseurs of of either of these genres, speculating again here, but I would imagine that like quite a few people who are diehard connoisseurs of their genre may not really appreciate what could happen when you smash these two things together. So in the sense of a video game, um, I mean, another example of like this kind of cross-pollination in, uh, in video game genres is the, uh, the rhythm shooter genre, which has become mm, popular over yeah. the past few years with like... Um, uh, Metal Hellsinger, and uh, what's the other one? BPM, I think it was. Oh Bullets yeah, yeah, the the rhythm FPS game, yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, Metal Hellsinger, that was actually a game that was scored by Two Feathers, the studio that yes. I went to the event of uh, last week. That anyway. was a, that came out just last year, and it was just really it was super cool. Yeah, the same thing where you where you mash genres together, just like in the in the way it works with music. Um, you know, normally when you have a very, very purist genre, so let's say we're making a bullet hell game, right? The mm -hmm. As the music composer, you have the privilege there of kind of skirting, like surfing on top of people's expectations. You know, people will come into a bullet hell game with a certain expectation of what they will want to hear. 
because this is the kind of thing that normally you would expect from the soundtrack of a bullet hell game. So now as the music producer there and also the sound designer, you kind of have like a, an interesting envelope to play with there in terms of how much do you pander to the expectations of the player and the connoisseurs of the genre and how much do you sort of gently stretch it <laughs> and, yeah. and sort of push it out a little bit and, and take it into new and interesting directions. Now, if you have two genres that are being smashed together, I can imagine, because I've never done that either, but I can imagine that now you have an interesting opportunity because you could pander to the expectations of either genre or you could think, well, no, what we're doing here is something totally new. So it's total freedom, you know, and, and just go crazy with it and do what you like and, and be completely innovate, in, innovative, innovative, <laughs> innovative, innovative. Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I so think it's, it's interesting. Totally. I just want to mention that when you said gamelan and reggae, I did immediately think about, oh, there's an immediate connection that I can just make there, which mm. is, you know, gamelan itself is this percussion metal sound that is super interesting and often you're going to have it in ensemble. But you know what's also a sort of percussive metal instrument that's common in reggae? Steel drums. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, you know, you know, sometimes it's a matter of like, oh, what, what is the connection? Because is anything ever truly totally disconnected? You know, there, there's always a connection somewhere. Um, yeah. When you were talking about the... Uh, the bullet hell genre. It, it reminded me a, of an earlier conversation that we had. I think it was a while ago, last year, where we were talking about these bullet hell games that weren't scored in a typical way. And I brought up this example of Giga Wing 2, which mm. is darn near 20 years old now. Uh, actually, it might be more than 20 years old. And that had this sort of weird orchestral soundtrack that was right. so bombastic, uh, but it actually worked in many ways. Because I think a lot of what goes on in more guitar-oriented music, especially metal music, is that they're very neoclassical when it comes to their structures and harmonies. Right. It's like, right. hey, what's going on? Oh, yes, it's an electric guitar that's thrashing and soloing like mad, but really it's just a big diminished seventh chord before you go and transition into a new key, which is such a classical Mozartian yeah. thing to do. <laughs> you know, So like, there's always these connections anywhere and everywhere if you find them. You know, they're, they're there to be found, rather. Interesting. So so you're proposing that actually in the case of like a genre mashup, whether it is music or games, um, a lot of the fun there can really be had in actually identifying, you know, where that Venn diagram crosses over and what is the commonality between, say, gamelan and reggae. Uh, that Maybe that example was not distant enough. I should have, it should be like, I don't know, uh, no, it's, I'm gonna have to think about it. Like, what's the most? What's the two most incompatible musical genres? <laughs> Maybe that was not a good example. But like, so what you're proposing is that, like, yeah, the, like identifying where these things cross over and then exploiting that to kind of guide you in the direction mm -hmm. uh, is an exciting potential opportunity with these kinds of genre mashups. Is is that what you're proposing? Yeah, I think so, and I think that's also part of what makes what makes game development or any sort of music work 
honestly pretty fun, you know, because it's got to be creative there. You know, it's got to be fun and exciting to actually work on something rather than it being totally, totally rote. Now, Mm. I'm just speaking for myself here. Um, Last episode, I was talking about this game called The Pro Rest 2, the the Pro Wrestling 2, made by this developer, Yukes, that is known for just making pro wrestling games. Literally Mm. decades of just making pro wrestling game after pro wrestling game after pro wrestling game. And that's cool. That's certainly a way to go about doing things, whether you're thinking about it from the perspective of game development and just sheerly making games or the business of game development, you know, creating right. a sustainable model for uh, making this comp- this company survive, for employing yeah. people and engaging them. Uh, but there's also something to be said for actively searching out places of uncertainty and yeah. excitement and something like oh you know what gamelon and reggae there's a point there that is not too certain but at least there's a stepping stone and it will be really exciting to step off of that stepping stone into a new world that's going to be this undiscovered but oh man this is the soundtrack that i'm going to make for this game right Mm, yeah yeah I, i agree with you entirely I remember that when I um that the very first big game that I was involved with was uh for uh, we did it for Sony and this was like ages ago. Uh, it was never released in the end because of a whole bunch of complicated uh reasons, but the um I remember that I was in the studio with my colleagues. This was when, when I was in Japan and we had a whole lot of leeway to to be creatively innov- innovative innovative. So um Anything went, you know, basically. Mm-hmm. It, it could have been anything. And I remember that um, one experience that I had there, which was really, really educational and kind of formative for me, was that um, at first, because the game looked really bizarre and it was uh, it was for PlayStation VR, or the very early uh, prototype of the PlayStation VR called the Morpheus. And because um, mm-hmm. uh, we were working in this kind of this new genre more or less of VR and visually the game was just like really, really eccentric and very weird. And I thought to myself, this is great. I could actually just do anything. There is no guidelines here. There's no kind of preconceived expectation for what to expect from this because this is something totally new. And I remember what was very interesting for me was that I'll, I'll do like a little sketch during the day and play it to my colleagues and just sort of see uh, specifically the artists, you know, what, what basically what they thought and, you know, like, do you like this? Do you you think this has legs? Should I continue in this direction? Or, uh, you know, if, if you don't, that's cool. Tomorrow I'll just Mm -hmm. try something totally different. And I did this for a few days. And I remember that the only time it really felt like we actually, I, I got like a really good, yeah, that's it. That's the kind of thing that would be good was actually when I started to intentionally, um, basically be less innovative <laughs> and sort of pull it back towards existing genres and existing kind of cues in genres uh, mm. where people could say, oh, that sounds like this or that sounds like that. Once I did that and pulling it back towards the familiar, 
that's when it started to get people more enthusiastic when, than when I was just sort of, you know, trying to be totally new and innovative. And so mm, yeah. the role of the, the player expectation, you know, what they expect to hear is something that since then, I guess I've, because of that experience, um, I've, I've been always biased towards considering that player expectation is, is kind of sacred. It doesn't mean that you can, it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to, or that you shouldn't kind of go off in, in strange directions or pull the, you know, there's definitely a, um, a place for going in a, in a totally different direction. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but kind of, uh, having some sense of, of like magnetic North pointing towards an, a familiar thing or an expectation, uh, is something that, that, um, yeah, I guess I've, I've, uh, grown to find very, very important. And so, yeah, all that you're saying about basically taking, finding that familiar aspect in the crossover, whatever it is that you can find that's similar about these two disparate aspects of these, mm -hmm. the genres that you're mixing together. Um, uh, yeah, to me just makes a lot of sense and it's an interesting and cool way to kind of innovate, but still retain some of that familiarity. Mm -hmm, yeah. Everything can change from project to project too, you know, maybe it's okay to be very, very in the box because that being in the box allows you to establish that super tight groove. And that's so important, whether you're talking about gameplay and production process, or you're talking about music, you know, mm -hmm. having that groove is so nice, but then also being innovative, being exciting, being what the heck and you know surprising and shocking yeah. oh man i mean there's all sorts of feelings there like i i just love the fact that the experiences that i had as a player back in the 80s and 90s were full of you know excitement and shock and surprise as well as familiarity um and it seems like those are the exact experience that I have now that I'm on the other side of the screen working on these games for, for years. It's just, you know, not, not necessarily something that can be shared with the world yet, but mm. I'm certainly sharing it with the people that I'm working on these games with. And it's, it's fun. It's exciting. It's, it's cool. I, I don't know what else to say, except, Hey, game development is actually pretty cool. Despite all the craziness that happens when companies, decide to do weird things but okay i'll stop getting into that yeah but there is some uh speaking of weird things uh, i believe there's a another piece of news that's been going around uh, specifically in our circles in game audio circles uh this week uh concerning uh takedowns by streaming platforms oh no not that <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah i i think i was the one that came across this news first uh but uh, darn it I mean, what, what can I say? Uh, basically, there are some soundtracks that have been taken down recently, and it was very confusing as to why. But then the composer spoke out, and it turned out it's not just this one soundtrack, but a whole bunch of soundtracks. So going back to the beginning, just this week in the middle of September, people were noticing that the soundtrack for Tunic was taken down and tunic was uh made by this not tunic itself but the soundtrack was actually made by uh this couple 
uh, the composers Terrence Lee and Janice Kwan. Mm. They've done this soundtrack along with other soundtracks over the years. And Terrence basically said on his Twitter or uh, on his X feed that <laughs> someone basically threatened them over a messaging platform saying, hey, we're going to take down your music. And lo and behold, the music was taken down. Basically, their entire catalog was taken down from the various music distribution sites and streaming sites like Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon Music and all that. So now all those soundtracks gone because of DMCA claims. And DMCA mm. is, of course, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Now, the, the thing about DMCA is that it is very light and ultra-responsive. So you can just make a false claim and boom, platforms like Apple or YouTube, as most people are probably more familiar with it uh, in effect, they have to just take these things down as an immediate response to these DMCA claims. And mm. so all of these soundtracks that have been written by um, Terrence and Janice are gone. You can still purchase them on places like Bandcamp, but mm. the vast majority of music listening these days is, of course, on things like Apple Music and Spotify and all that. And now you currently cannot listen to this music. It's been a week now. It's just really hell for these guys mm. to to get their soundtrack back on because the onus is on them to prove that these false strikes are in fact false. And the person mm. that issued these DMCA claims has been using throwaway information in order to uh, levy these claims. So a throwaway email account, you know, false names. So mm. it's really, really scary out there. I, I was, I think I put a tweet out there that said, um, yeah, it seems like streaming music as a business is very much like walking a tightrope, you know? Yeah. It, ugh, so yeah. easy to fall off and entirely not of any action that you took. Just, just a bad actor here. Yeah, it's it's a funny world, really, for um, music. You know, the on the positive side, certainly, um, you know, who would have expected that here we are in 2023 and you could make a whole career out of writing music for video games? That's mm -hmm. cool. You know, <laughs> you know, back in the in the 80s and the 90s, you know, who would have ever thought that that could actually be a career that could be open and available for so many of us? So that's fantastic. Um, yeah. And also. By the same token, you know, the ubiquity and sort of throwaway disposable nature of music consumption now, the result of that has been a huge upsurge in the popularity of live performance and, you know, consumers realizing that, yeah, if you, if you want like a real proper musical experience, you go to hear the people play live. And mm -hmm. that is also absolutely fantastic because, you know, I'm sure there was a time there must have been a time early on in, in recorded music history when the idea of recorded music started to become more ubiquitous. People must have been thinking this is the end of public performance. You know, this is the end of piano literacy because now you don't have to play piano. You can just listen to, you know, a, a fine pianist play it for you. 
Um, mm. So these are wonderful positive developments. On the other side of it, you know, it's it's bizarre now that yeah, if you if you're a professional musician, you don't make your living through streaming platforms. You just it's just not possible unless you're like the 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 top point one percent, like you know the Taylor Swifts and the uh, mm. uh, you know any of these or one of the or the one of the big massive record labels who who own a bunch of stuff. You know, you you just don't make money from them. So then, at that point, it becomes kind of like an aesthetic aesthetic thing, doesn't it, to have your stuff available on these platforms where they can be all be consumed more or less for free. Um, mm-hmm. Then, yeah, now on top of that, like in this situation, if you have a certain amount of popularity, such as the Tunic soundtrack, to be then targeted for this kind of malicious activity. Uh, and be very, very powerless to do anything about it just because of the way these structures are set up or or poorly not set up, I should say, the way that they are kind of very, very seemingly um, uh, kind of slapped together policies and systems for handling this kind of thing. It's just a really bizarre world. And you might say, well, what does it matter? You know, yeah, if you get, you know, lots of listens on the Tunic soundtrack, realistically, how much are you actually making from these streaming platforms? Like, you know, Maybe even like fifty dollars, a hundred dollars. I mean, good on you if the, if that's what you're making. Most of us are making like one dollar or less than a dollar. So what's the big fuss? Why are you worried about it? Well, yeah, Oof. you know that that's again the same thing. It's just the fact that you're so powerless to control these things because of the mechanisms that are set up and the way they are. Um, yeah, yeah, it must feel absolutely horrible. Uh, you know, Vince. I think the moral of today's show. When you think about what's happening to the Tunic composers and also what's happening to pretty much anybody who's found success with Unity as their game engine, it seems the moral of today's uh, episode is, yeah, do your best in, in game development, but don't do too well. <laughs> yeah. Don't, oh, don't be too successful. <laughs> don't be too, too successful. It's crazy. Um, I actually just saw some news literally, um, literally just now a retweet from a few hours ago saying that uh, Toby Fox and the Deltarune soundtrack. So, you know, Deltarune, um, Undertale, you know, you probably familiar with that soundtrack. You know, those mm. uh, Toby Fox has been certainly one of the big hits of mm. game music and game development over the last few years. Um Maybe you've heard of Tunic, uh, but uh, but Toby Fox, uh, you might be uh, more likely to have heard of him and played his games and listened to his soundtracks. Apparently, that also received a fraudulent DMCA takedown notice. Wow! It's uh, this is something that's happening. I'm I'm wondering when are we going to see this happen even closer to home? Like, am I going to? get hit by this um yeah ooh, it's it's, uh, a, it's scary yeah it is, yeah it is scary you you would think that there it wouldn't be uh yeah like to to have yeah i don't know anyway what what's the answer vince let's just uh, let's perform our music live or uh Stick to Bandcamp, or <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I mean there is certainly the Bandcamp thing. There's, um, I know a lot of people have been talking about the ineffectiveness of distribution because so many of these soundtracks that are coming out are courtesy of 
this new world of DIY music distribution. Mm. You go back 10, 15 years ago and, uh, all right, what does it take to actually get on Apple Music, especially since, I mean, that was the start of things with Apple Music, right? 15 some years ago. Um, Yeah. um, There's so many of these companies now that do this type of DIY stuff, whether you're a game developer that wants to do the soundtrack, put it on streaming platforms, or you're the music composer uh, doing it yourself, you go through something like DistroKid or mm. TuneCore or, or SoundDrop or, or yeah. all these guys that allow you to do it. But they're not necessarily that interested in helping you out it seems mm. when these things happen, you know, you are just a small fry compared to their big library of music that they are distributing on everyone's behalf. Um, mm. This is very different from the old model where, oh, you're on, you're on Sony Classical, okay, you're on RCA, you're on Deutsche Gramophone, whatever. Um, you have a guy that you can talk to, and they are going to be there to say to. You know, companies. Hey, you know, this is this is my guy. This is my artist. The, those those DMCA claims are totally fake, and you, you can't just mess with us like this because we're Sony. We're invested mm. in everything that's happening there. Uh, that's not the same here with with a sound drop or um, or a tune core or whatever. Um, I have been hearing things about other distributors out there. Like lately, I've been checking out this one called Symphonic. Yeah, I've heard of them uh, as well. Another another DSP, and people are saying that they're pretty good, maybe mm. a little bit more hands-on, maybe a little bit more personal than what you typically get with the other distributors out there. But mm. I haven't done that myself. It in any case, it seems like this is certainly a turning point in how any of this is going to be rectified. Is mm. DistroKid, who is the DSP for the Tudic soundtrack, among others, are they actually going to do anything on their behalf? Uh, we'll find out. Mm. You know, I almost wonder whether for for like a, a real small time indie such as myself, I almost wonder whether it's worth actually avoiding streaming platforms entirely, seeing as in my case, um, uh, you know, the... The main reason that I have them on, have like my work on uh, on Spotify and Apple Music and and the rest of them, it it just serves more like a like a portfolio, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's basically, yeah. uh, and at that point, you know, would it be better to to focus on say Bandcamp or SoundCloud, where it's me uploading the information, uploading the tracks onto my account, at the, so I have total control of everything there because that, that's me. Um, yeah, maybe maybe that would be would be a, a better approach. I guess it's the the maybe this is a, conver- a bigger conversation for another time. But that the the existence of set of Bandcamp itself is is a kind of an, an anomaly, really, that they've managed to create such a a good business model out of what is really quite an old fashioned approach. And um, uh, yeah, Bandcamp is owned by Epic now, aren't they? Which yeah, a, there's a there's a the weird. game connection there. That just happened in the last year. Yeah, that's a that's an odd one. I'm not exactly sure what Epic's intentions were with that, but uh, hey, <laughs> uh, it's good, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, if, they, if they're working on our behalf and they're trying to 
you know, I'm not sure if they're actively trying to make things better for music overall, but certainly the Bandcamp model has been good to a lot of people. And if they're going to at least maintain that, that seems cool to me. Hmm. Indeed. So what are we going to do now, Vince? We, we've already done conspicuous consumption. So uh, is this is this episode 250? Is this the one where we just kind of go straight out the exit or? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I just feel bad because like I haven't been playing games lately. There's mm. my I haven't fired up my PS5 even like I mentioned buying Eternites. But I didn't even start up my PS5 in order to buy it. I was just doing it with the PlayStation app on my phone. Mm. I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'll buy this thing. I, I put a little uh, note to self that I'm, I'm going to check this game out. So I mm. went ahead and purchased it on my smartphone. No problem. Man, um, well, what have I been conspicuously consuming? You know what I have been very conspicuously doing right now? is cleaning up my place because I have too much stuff. So I'm going to tell you about something. I have a problem. Okay. I have too many microphones. <laughs> Come on, Vince, you only need one. <laughs> oh, oh, God. It's like, I, I'm looking right now at the corner of my room and, oh, wait, why do I have two of wait a minute one two three four five six seven i'm looking at seven microphones that are in the corner of my room and they are all higher end valve mics like right wow ranging market play the, the market price for those things is ranging anywhere from like 500 to three thousand dollars wow okay it's and and there was a reason for me to have these things back in the day, which was that I was working a lot with voiceover. Right. And the thing that I would do is I would drive over to places um to artists and actually figure out how to record them well with the right. gear that I had. And I needed to have nice stuff to match the tone that they were getting when they were going to these Burbank and North Hollywood studios that had a nice $3,000, $4,000 Neumann in front of them. Mm. So I needed stuff at least on that level or on that tier of quality. So that's how I got these. And I was able to get work by just going there and you could book me to get pickups for these artists instead of having to book more studio time. I see. So that that was one of my business value propositions back when I was working 10 years ago. Okay. I did that on the side. It was fun. But now I have too many of these microphones. Uh, hey, if you come to Los Angeles, if you come to SoCal, um, you are welcome to have one of these things. I swear <laughs> to you, they are brilliant. I think uh, now that you've said that on the show, Vince, you're going to get you're going to get a lot of sudden visitors now. I think. <laughs> hey, you know, I always appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's been so easy over the last few years uh, to just stay at home and and work, but I don't mind the visiting. Um, and hey, maybe if you are visiting and you're a game audio professional, maybe you could put you on the show here maybe for a future episode of the game audio hour that would be cool yeah that sounds good 
That sounds yeah. good. Well, you're going to have to give me like an inventory of your microphone list just to see uh, whether or not it's worth a ticket to Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, 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 definitely. I will do that. But okay. um, maybe I'll do that after we close this episode. So let's do Nicely that done. because... Nicely done. Nicely done. <laughs> Go on, do it. Yeah. Do it. This was episode 250 of the Game Audio Hour. If you liked what you heard, feel free to support us by subscribing to us at your podcast purveyor of choice and leaving us a review to keep us in the forefront of the algorithm. You can also follow us on X at Game Audio Hour, where we post notices about episodes as they drop, as well as try to support some other fun and positive voices out there in the social media landscape. And of course, the easy way to do all of this without having to remember any of what I just said is to go to GameAudioHour.com. So go ahead and do that while I... Um, I'll write up an inventory of this list of microphones. They're, they're really cool. Um, I definitely have sort of a, a perspective when it comes to curating my microphone collection. It's very American. Extremely American. You know, it's not German. It's not Japanese. It's American. It's pretty cool. I see. Okay. Well, yeah. I look forward to that. Yeah. Come on over. You know, Game Sound Con is next month, right?